Our reading is Acts chapter 15. That's on page 1110 in the Church Bible and 1681 in the Large Print Bible. The Council at Jerusalem. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this will I return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, 
Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. And then the start of the second missionary journey of Paul. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. We thank God for his word. Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to see you. Uh, and uh, thank you, Thelma, for reading. Uh, it's a funny passage, that one, isn't it? Um, it's quite difficult. And as, as it was read, you were probably thinking, firstly, what on earth is all that about? And secondly, what possible good could that do to me? How, how could that be relevant to my life? So we're going to look at it together tonight. And um, I'm very jealous of Alan Isam, who's preaching on Acts 16 next week, one of my favorite passages. And tonight really kind of tees that up. It's the kind of building blocks to help us understand all that goes on in chapter 16. Um, should we pray together? And uh, I'd encourage you to keep Acts chapter 15 open. Heavenly Father, we thought this morning of what it means that you are a God of love. And we know that the, your love is most perfectly displayed in the gospel, which we're thinking of tonight in this great passage. So please help us with truths that are very familiar Please may there be applications for each of us that would make a difference to the way we relate to you and to those around us this week. And please, by the power of your spirit, would you work now to help us understand this passage and for it to mean something important for us for the week ahead. Amen. I'm very uh, pleased that Jeff Stedman is here um, and maybe one or two others. Uh, did anyone see the rugby yesterday? <laughs> Peter, he's not impressed either. Uh, it was a great rugby match. I'm not going to gloat about the win, but it was a game. I, I normally watch rugby games with a good friend of mine, and we couldn't get together this week to watch it. So we were kind of in text conversation all the way through the game. 
Uh, and uh, I said to him at half time, this is exhausting watching this game. It's absolutely brilliant. But at that point, five minutes before the end, there was a real sort of tension point where the game could have gone either way. I thought France were actually going to do it. Um, and it was only France, uh, Wales were going to do it. It was only because of one of the Welsh mistakes that um, England capitalised and ended up winning the game. But that kind of tension point where the game could have gone one way or the other, um, it, it made it a real nail-biter. Maybe you can think of examples in your own life, maybe in, in your working life. Perhaps you were in a board meeting and you were presenting a product to a group of company directors or something, and you weren't sure what the outcome was going to be. Was it going to go this way or that? Maybe you're a teacher and you were waiting for exam results. And, you know, people who who were sort of on the borderline, were they going to pass or not? There's that tension. Uh, Maybe a big decision in your family. Uh, These sort of tension points uh, can be difficult. And and Acts chapter 15 is one of these tension points where kind of the decision, which way does it go, had a profound impact and was going to have a profound impact on the life of the church. Um, James, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, we learned that back in chapter 12, verse 17. He's going to deliver a, a decision at the end of this chapter that really was key for the gospel carrying on. And uh, actually, if Acts 15 hadn't happened, then we probably wouldn't be here today because the gospel probably wouldn't have continued to spread. So it's a really crucial chapter, even though it's difficult. I remember where we are. We're in Jerusalem. So the apostles were first gathered in Jerusalem when they were Pentecost. They were sent out to share the gospel. And then they've now regathered in Jerusalem to resolve an issue that's been bubbling up um, a kind of theological issue in many ways about uh, who who constitutes the people of God. What does it mean to become a Christian? Um, know too that the first missionary journey has just been completed and Acts 15 is this watershed before chapter 16 starts. Next week we'll look at the second missionary journey. And actually what goes on in chapter 2 is crucial because Alan will show us next week that the gospel after this decision for the first time moves into Europe. And if without this decision, that wouldn't have been possible. So it's hugely important. Uh, we're going to look at, look, we're looking at a, a problem in this passage. And one of the interesting things to note is that the problem that this church had to resolve was a problem that stemmed from a good thing. Uh, the first missionary journey, lots of people had come to Christ. And I don't know if you've noticed, but through the book of Acts, chapters 1 to 14, we get this repeated refrain that's almost always something like, the Lord added to their number daily. As we thought in the early chapters of Acts, this is mission unstoppable. You get these little narrative points all the way through Acts where God is adding to the number and more and more people are becoming Christians. And so that's a good thing, but good things often in the church create problems. And we'll know that in our own church, um, growth, which we're experiencing in some ways in the church, creates lots of headaches, organizational headaches and personal headaches and lots of things that are difficult. Um, So it's a problem that stems from a good thing. So let's have a look together. And what we're going to see is a problem that emerges. We're going to see a a truth that is upheld that addresses that problem and then see an outcome. And then towards the end, just want to try and dig down a bit deeper. How can this lesson really help us in our church today? So have a look at verses 1 to 5 because we get this problem um, emerging. Uh, Verse 1 says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Uh, these weren't, these certain people weren't just kind of random people who'd come from another church and come to this church in Jerusalem. We know if, if you read the book of Galatians that these were very influential leaders. And the problem was they weren't just leaders who were coming and being a part of this other church. They were actually coming and teaching a different truth to the truths of the gospel that Paul and Peter and Barnabas had been preaching. Uh, and this is why verse 2 you read that Paul and Barnabas enter into sharp dispute and debate with them. 
because these other teachers come in and teach something that's not the true gospel, and so they have to fight it. It's a major, major issue for this church. And look what the problem was back in verse 1. These certain influential leaders are saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Remember, circumcision was an outward act that was a kind of marker that you belonged to the people of God. And there were the, the, the debate really in this chapter is this debate between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Let me try and explain this. People came to faith in Jesus in the early church, and they were called Christians. Some of them had a Jewish background, and some had a Gentile background, a non-Jewish background. And they had different understandings of what it meant to be a Christian. And some of those who were Jewish Christians were saying to the Gentile Christians, okay, you can be a Christian, but to be a proper Christian, you've got to become a Jew first. Because we Jews are the proper people of God, so you need to be circumcised as well. So the Jewish Christians were, in in a sense, putting up a kind of barrier or a hurdle that these Gentile Christians had to jump over to become kind of proper Christians. And Paul and Barnabas say, no, that's completely wrong. Do you remember back in chapter 9 when Saul was converted, was renamed Paul? God himself gave Paul the very specific mission. And what was it? As you see on the screen there, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, and before the people of Israel. So this man, Paul, who's going to be central to the second missionary journey, he had a God-given mandate to take the gospel to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And they're going to be people primarily in Europe, where the gospel's heading after this chapter. And we've also seen that command that materialized, because do you notice in our reading, uh, in our chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 14, They'd come off the back of their first journey, and notice they say in this council, they've reported everything God has done. And what has God done? God has miraculously opened the eyes of Gentile people, and they've put their trust in Christ and become Christians too. And so they're sent to Jerusalem to kind of find a resolution. So the problem that emerges is these Jewish Christians who are essentially saying to be a real Christian, you need to become a Jew first, which in our kind of parlance, modern day today, would be something like there are things you must do to be or perhaps more accurately become a proper Christian. Have you ever heard that? You've got to kind of become like us. You've got to believe certain things. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, be very careful to become a Christian. There aren't lots of hoops to jump through. Repentance and faith is all that is needed to become a Christian. Let's think about later on, once you become a Christian, there might be some hoops to jump through. There might be things that need to change. But to become a Christian, they want it to be really crystal clear. All that is needed is repentance and faith. So in verses 6 to 12, this problem that's emerged is combated with a truth that is upheld. Have a look at verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Just notice there, there's no kind of rash reaction. There's not a kind of panic and kind of feeling they've got to deal with it. They got together and wisely taught, talked and no doubt prayed. But they came to a dis- decision, verse 7, and after much discussion, Peter gets up and addresses them. And notice what he declares in verse 11. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. That really is referring to um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the great gospel truth of the Reformation. Uh, it is by faith that we are saved, not by works. It's by grace we are saved through faith, not by works. It's a, it's a wonderful truth. 
So Peter says, no, no, you don't need to become a Jew to become a real Christian. It's by the grace of God that you become a Christian. And notice what his reasoning is. He says, brothers and sisters, you know. So he's saying, this isn't my personal opinion. I'm not kind of some leader of the church who's got some opinion. I'm just sort of smacking you in the face with it. He's saying, you already know what I'm teaching you. Because some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Do you remember back in our series in Acts, chapter 10, the dream that Peter had? Where God said to Peter, Peter, you need to learn a really important lesson. The gospel is for all people. And he did it with all these foods that Peter thought were unclean because he was a Jew. And God sort of in a vision lowers them to the earth and says, no, you can eat any of this. Now anyone can be a Christian. And Peter was wrestling with him. But God did a miracle in Peter's life and he came to see that the gospel was for all people. And then you'll know one chapter before, chapter 9, as we've already seen, when Saul was converted and he was given this mandate from God. You are my instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then notice how it goes on, verse 8. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. In other words, how do you become a Christian? It's not through having some outward sign, being baptized in a particular way, or being circumcised. Being a Christian is about having your hearts transformed by the work of God's Spirit. That is the thing that really matters. Not outward signs, but an inward change and so he says verse 10 now then why do you then try to test god by putting on the necks of the gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear he's referring in that yoke there to the law the law given by god to his people a good thing but they could never keep it so it became a burden to them and this declaration is saying to these jewish christians listen you don't have to be a law-keeping jew anymore for to be part of god's family You need to trust in the one who has been the perfect law keeper himself, Jesus Christ. So what they're teaching here is totally different to what these Jewish Christians were sometimes believing and what these false teachers were sharing. So the truth that must be upheld is this, that salvation is all of God's work. And you see the little clues in the narrative of why this is true. Look at verse 7. God made a choice. I'm not a Christian because I figured it out or because I was born into a Christian home. God was very gracious to me and opened my eyes. And if you're a Christian, that is the reason that you're a Christian. No other reason. Verse 8, he purified their hearts by faith. It wasn't something they did outwardly, it was his work inwardly. And verse 11, through the grace of who? The Lord Jesus, we are saved. It's a glorious truth to be upheld. And then in verses 12 to 21, we kind of get an outcome that is reached. And this is one that I referred to earlier, where if this outcome hadn't been reached, I think the Christian faith kind of hung here. If this outcome hadn't been reached, the gospel wouldn't have continued. And perhaps we wouldn't be here today. And the outcome which we've seen, as it was read earlier, is this. To be a real Christian, you don't need to become a Jew first. What does that mean for you and me? Because Jew-Gentile doesn't really mean a lot to us today. Uh, The great and glorious truth there in yellow, there are not things that you need to do to become a Christian. There are not things you need to do. You don't need to know stuff. You don't need to have a particular background. You don't need to have uh, have figured everything out, have answers to all your questions. Not to become a Christian, no. 
to become a Christian, all you need to do is trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. Just pause and think about that. Uh, Off the back of this morning as well, thinking about God being a God of love. Isn't that the most glorious truth? If you are here today, tonight, and you are a Christian, it is because God in his mercy has opened your eyes. And he's rescued you all and only because of his grace and love. Not because of your performance. And not because of mine. That's a truth that we must never ever move on from or ever become familiar with. If that ever ceases to move you and stir your heart and your passion, then pray with a friend that you would restore that passion because that is the heart of the gospel and that is what we believe and we must keep on believing and it's a glorious truth. But let's dig a little bit deeper. Why, why was this outcome so important for this church and why is it so important for us that we grasp what is going on here in Acts chapter 15? What is this truth really? The gospel breaks down barriers and removes hurdles. The gospel breaks down barriers and removes hurdles. Have a look at verses 12 to 13, 14. There's some really subtle things in here which are really significant. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles. Now can someone tell me, Where in scripture do you see this phrase, signs and wonders, and who is it normally referring to? Jesus performed lots of signs and wonders, yes. Who who were the people to whom God revealed a number of signs and wonders, particularly in the Old Testament? Who were the people? The Jews. But look here, he very specifically says signs and wonders, which yes, God has always done for Jews. Guess what? He's doing them now for Gentiles. It's his way of saying, wake up. God is at work amongst you and Gentile. Have a look at another little subtle one, verse 13, 14. They finish, James speaks up and he says, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name. Who's Simon? What's his other name? Peter, Simon Peter. Simon is the Greek name for Peter. Why here does James not refer to Peter in the way Peter's normally referred to? Why does he deliberately use his Greek name, Simon? He's just dropping little hints. This Jewish man, Peter, Simon. The gospel is for Jew and for Greek. These aren't little, these are, these are subtle things, but they're very significant. Uh, last one, verse 14, he, he chose a people for himself. Again, a people is a phrase that's used in the Old Testament to refer to the Jews. Remember the promises God made to Abraham? I will make you into a great nation, a great people, and I will give you a land and I will bless you. They were promises to Jews. But here, James refers to the people of God as Jew and... You're beginning to get it. He's making it really, really clear. Guess what, friends? The gospel's for everyone. And he does it in such a genius way. And to make it even more clear, notice what he does in in verse 15. He says, look, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. So James is kind of saying, listen, if you could be in any doubt, this shouldn't be a surprise to you. Why? Because a prophet in the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament, spoke of this. And he quotes from Amos. Look what he says. After this, so this is God speaking to Amos in the Old Testament. And this is referring to the exile where God's people are taken out of Jerusalem, out of God's presence in punishment. He says, after this exile... 
God says, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Here's the bit. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name. And then it goes on verse 18. Things known from long ago. In other words, this was always my plan, God says. All the way back in the Old Testament, God has said through the prophets, one day I will rebuild my people, but they're not just going to be Jews. And so as James explains this and draws attention to their scriptures, he's saying, you should know this because God promised it all those years ago. And I just love what you find there in the center of that quotation. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, who bear my name, only the Jews were able to bear the name of God, or so they thought. But God says, anybody can bear my name. Who are followers of Christ? They are Christians, followers of Christ. And the point is, anybody can be a Christian. Anybody. Just let's pause for a moment. Um, Here's a question for you, just to reflect on it. I wouldn't mind if one or two want to throw something back. Um, how does this truth encourage you in your evangelism? Just, just throw some thoughts around this truth that anybody can be a Christian. How does that encourage you as you seek to be a witness? Nobody's outside of God's grace. If you're trying to share the gospel with the most stubborn, hard-hearted heart, you have no idea what God is doing in that heart. He has the power to change that heart, yeah. Yeah, sometimes we get so scared in evangelism because you think, oh, I haven't got all the answers or I might get caught out. You don't need all the answers. All you need is Jesus, because that's what evangelism is, proclaiming Jesus. If you know him, you're a great evangelist. Just speak of him. And if you haven't got answers, just go, say to your friend, I don't know. But I'll ask someone who does know, and I'll come back to you. Evangelism, in, in many ways, we make much more complicated and much more threatening than it needs to be. Evangelism is sharing Jesus, sharing repentance and faith. And God's wired us all differently. And as he's wired you, he just calls you to be a witness as you can. So lots of encouragements for you. Here's a, here's a more rhetorical question. Think of this in your head. How does this challenge you in your evangelism? How does this challenge us perhaps as a church? Anyone can be a follower of Christ. I, I hope and I, I doubt many actually think this, but perhaps subconsciously there may be things that we do within this church even where... We kind of say to people without actually saying to them, you know, to become a part of Long Crenden Baptist Church, you've kind of got to become like one of us. You've got to be a kind of Long Crendonite or someone who's quite similar. Uh, we're quite monocultural. That's largely a reflection of the people who live around us. I don't think we're making huge mistakes in this area. But should someone come who's not kind of from around here, who's different, how would you react? Uh, here, here's one of my prayers, and you may not thank me for this, but I hope that you will. We'll know in a minute. I often pray that this church will become more messy. I don't mean that in a sort of looking for problems, but we are very comfortable. We're very nice. We're all very kind of similar in many ways. I'd love this church to be more messy. How would we react as a church if we got Aylesbury Prison up the road and we got Spring Hill? If an ex-offender wanted to come to this church, how would we feel? I'm not sure about you. You've got quite a checkered background and we're quite nice and safe here. You know, there's two or three in the church who've got a real passion for fostering or for adoption. It's a wonderful thing. I'd love God to stir the heart of more people in our church who have means to consider fostering and adoption. But that would be messy, wouldn't it? Because it's difficult. And there's lots of challenges that can come with that. But it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. 
new people come to our church, it could get more messy, but would we embrace it? There's all sorts of applications for us. As we, as we do church, I use the phrase jargon busting. We've got to be really careful we don't use kind of Christian language that doesn't mean anything to a visitor. Use Christian words, fine, but explain them, particularly things like the Lord's Supper. We need to explain what is happening, not just assume that everyone knows. These are just ways of being welcoming, ways of allowing our church to be more messy and to accept people who are different. If someone comes in with different colored hair or comes in with tattoos or comes in and wears different clothes or comes in and they have very little money, how do we accept them? Would you make a beeline to them? Or would you just say, you're clearly not from around here? Awkward. Uh, a, little bit, a little bit fun, but actually there's some serious applications in here. Uh, how would we respond? Because I think it'd be wonderful if we became a bit more messy as a church. Uh, a wonderful thing would be that this church increasingly grows to be a, a church where we can just be real with each other. Where you can come on a Sunday morning and be utterly broken. And that's okay. Haven't got to sort of put up a front, oh, I'm okay. But you know you go home and burst into tears. Just let, let us come to church and this be a safe place. Whether you're doing well, whether you're struggling, this is your family. On the 31st of October this year, we'll be celebrating 500 years since the Reformation in Europe. If you've never heard of the Reformation, um, that's a great tragedy, but don't worry because you will hear about it because we're going to do some preaching on it here. It's a hugely significant thing which we all need to learn about. Um, but the, the, one of the core truths at the heart of the English Reformation, which was a, a movement that went on in Europe in the 16th century, where the gospel was threatened, in many ways like the gospel was threatened here in Acts 15, certain people stood up. And one of the great truths that lay at the heart of the Reformation was two Latin words, sola fide. Sola meaning alone, fide faith. Faith alone. How do you come to Christ? It is through faith alone. And these are truths that, as we celebrate 500 years since the Reformation later this year, there'll be glorious truths to consider as a church. Because if this church ever, ever, ever moves on from Reformation faith, then we won't be a gospel church. And that would be a great tragedy. Just uh, for a few moments before we close, what then marks a true follower of Christ? Have a look at verse 19, because there's a little puzzle here, and I'd like you to do a bit of work to try and figure this out. The pronouncement that's given in verse 19 is this, it is my judgment, therefore, that we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, we shouldn't put stumbling blocks in front of them. But then in verse 20, there appears to be a stumbling block that's put in front of them. Do you see it? Instead, we should write to them and tell them to abstain from food polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, from meat strangled, uh, of meat of strangled animals and from blood. Any ideas what's going on? We're not going to put any hurdles up. We're going to make it really easy for the Gentiles to come into the church. But, what's he doing? Someone have a crack. And you won't be stupid if you get it wrong. Yeah, good. Good. Any, any other ideas? Just tease out a few things. It's good for you to work because it helps you to really engage rather than just sort of get it. Yeah, good. So there's a way of loving our brother and, and changes that happen after we become Christians. Any other thoughts? Good. Let's have one more comment from anyone. Just look at verse 20. Those prohibitions that he gives, most of them are associated with pagan temple worship that was associated with some of these Gentiles. So you look at food polluted to idols you, you think of someone like Ephesus and the great goddess Artemis the goddess of love what did some pagan people do 
they would go into this to this temple. They'd worship a false god by giving food, fruits, rather like um, um, uh, some Hindu religions, uh, some parts of Hindu religion today. And they would offer these fruits to these false gods. But tied up with all of that was terrible sexual immorality. They were temple prostitutes. And you kind of went to worship the gods and then, rather ironically, slept with these temple prostitutes. Horrific worship and horrific religion. And what, Paul, uh, what, what this declaration is saying is, listen, there's been all this stuff where I'm saying to the Jewish Christians, stop putting up hurdles for these Gentiles. They don't need to become Jewish and be circumcised to become Christians. But here he also challenges the Gentile Christians saying, listen, you don't become a Christian by continuing your life and just having, having the Christianity as a kind of badge or a bolt on. No, when you come to Christ, it gives you a whole new identity, which will mean for you, Gentile Christians, you need to put aside your old life. You can't worship in this false temple with false gods anymore. There's one living God. And so you see, he's, he's bringing together the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians with all the different baggage they had. The Jewish Christians' baggage was there's hurdles you need to jump through to be a real Christian. The Gentiles' baggage was false worship. He says, strip it all away because the real thing you need to focus on now is Christ. And then notice at the end, Verses 22 to 39, they write this letter that explains the decision. And just to sort of jump to the end, verse 30, the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. And this is the bit I love. Verse 31, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Why? Because they understood how liberating the gospel was. There would no doubt have been some Jewish Christians who for the first time the penny dropped. I get it now. I get it. And no doubt for the first time some Gentile Christians who got it too. I get it. The temple, that stuff, I've got to leave that behind because I'm trusting in Christ now. I get it. The gospel is all about grace. It's all about Jesus. And what we've seen in chapter 15, if you want a summary, which is going to be the building block for next week in chapter 15, is that what God has done through these apostles is he has given a new definition of what it means to be part of the people of God. And to be part of the people of God, all you and I need to do is to trust in Christ. One final thought. Think of some of the key players in this chapter. Paul. We were first introduced to in chapter 9. Barnabas, we were first introduced to in chapter 4. Peter, James and Silas. Can someone tell me, what do they all have in common? Have a stab. I've heard it already. Someone said it. They're all Jews. These are all Jews, but they've so understood the gospel that here they're defending the gospel and they're now prepared to fight against Jewish Christians who've got it wrong. These are Jews who've come to understand that their identity now is not in their Jewishness, but in Christ. And they are now fighting for Gentiles to put their trust in Jesus, for their identity to be defined in Christ. I think that's the most wonderful thing. And as we close, in many ways, these final sort of four sentences are really simple, but that's the beauty of the gospel. How could we respond this week? Let's be a church that believes the gospel. That really, really believes that the gospel is for everyone. Really believes that. Because if you really believe that, then there won't be a neighbor who we wouldn't bother to share the gospel with. Because we really believe that the gospel is for them. And if God opens their eyes, they could be part of our church family one day. And that would be a glorious thing. 
Let's believe the gospel. Secondly, let's rejoice in the gospel. As I said earlier, if, if this gospel truth ever becomes familiar to you so it doesn't stir your heart and your passions, you've forgotten the essence of the gospel. God has given you life. And he's given me life and it's all a gift. Let's rejoice in the gospel, particularly if you're going through a tough time at the moment. There's so much in the world that is difficult, but you can always rejoice in the gospel because that gift of forgiveness can never be taken from you. Let's encourage each other to be rejoicing this week. Thirdly, let's cling to the gospel. There's always dangers that we can add to the gospel, be a bit like these Jewish Christians. If someone came to our church who was a bit different, who wasn't from around here, Let's cling to the gospel and love them to bits. Just like God has loved us to bits. And finally, as, uh, as we build on what we were learning together this morning, let's live the gospel this week. Let's be people and let's be a church that loves Jesus Christ and recognizes that gospel is for all people. And who for you this week could you love enough to share something of the gospel with? Just think of one person. Could you write to them? If you're one of the guys, could you invite them to the men's event coming up? Who could you love a bit more by sharing this most wonderful news? Because you could be the person who God has prepared since before the beginning of time, who is that little link in the chain that helps bring a person to faith. And that would be a most glorious thing to celebrate, wouldn't it? The gospel is for all people. And I thank God that so many of us have had a chance to respond to that great gospel for ourselves. Amen.